All right, everyone, let's call a timeout. Our next guest for season three is the surgeon, entrepreneur, educator, public speaker, and Amazon number one best-selling author, Dr. Samantha Pillay. A very warm welcome to our podcast, Dr. Pillay. Hi, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. As a guest on your show, I'm very honoured. Thank you. Um, would you like to start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. I'm a urologist, so that's uh, my surgical specialty. I'm located in Adelaide, South Australia, and I'm at a practice called Continent Matters, which I started in 2002. I am a subspecialist, which is um, slightly less common, it definitely was when I first started out, and I subspecialised just in uh, female urology and reconstructive urology, uh, focusing on the treatment of urinary incontinence. So I don't actually practice in general urology like stones and cancers and prostates. Um, so I've been in practice now for um, 20 years, more than 20 years since I finished my surgical training. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so Take us through your morning so far. How do you like to start your day? I am an early riser. Um, so a sleep in for me would be six o'clock. Uh, five o'clock is average. Sometimes it's four, sometimes it's three, and sometimes it's even two. Uh, I can get a lot of work done in the morning. Um, so, uh, and then sometimes I get up and go to the gym, do quite a bit before school drop off in the mornings. I've got a son at school. What I'm doing now, which definitely wasn't the, the case in the first 20 years, is having some admin time in my week schedule. So therefore, because I run the practice, there's a certain aspect that's business related. Uh, so I need to make phone calls, do meetings, do office work. And so I actually have some admin time uh, that I work remotely, work from home. Uh, so that's what I'm doing today, which is why I'm able to talk to you. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Uh so what's one thing you can't live without? I'd like to say coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I've already had four cups today. <laughs> Just surgical training and um, got me hooked on that. Uh, I have managed to wean myself off at various stages throughout my life, but uh, coffee would be uh, something that I would cry if I didn't have when I wake up in the morning. And um, if there was one profession outside of surgery that you could try, what it, would it be? That is interesting. I can't really say author um, <laughs> or writer or public speaker or entrepreneur because kind of I'm already doing those. So <laughs> something different, I would probably say a teacher or a midwife. I, obviously, I've fallen into the profession that I am in because I like helping people. So going back into your childhood years, can you tell us a bit about that? Where did you grow up? I was born in Adelaide and where did I grow up? I grew up at the Women's Children's Hospital. <laughs> I say that because I had congenital hip dysplasia and it was missed um, as a child. You know, I was born when there was no medical ultrasound and I'd failed to walk. I had prolonged hospital admission in those days. He kind of went in and came out, you know, 18 months later. They didn't kind of um, do outpatient treatments the way they do nowadays. And so I spent most of my childhood in and out of the 
hospital, in the, living in the outpatient department, the physios, you know, orthotics, all that sort of stuff. I went to an all-girls school. Um, that was influenced partly because, you know, it, wheelchairs in those days aren't like nowadays. I couldn't move. Someone bit myself. I was totally dependent on someone else, and that's a big burden when you start school um, because it means that, you know, with teachers, they, they'd have to move me or another student, which isn't that easy when you start in reception. Um, so unless an older child moved me or a teacher, I couldn't move. Um, I couldn't toilet myself. Um, so uh, and I was an all-girls school in Adelaide. Um, I was the only probably Asian, I'm half Sri Lankan, half English person. Uh, so it was a very, uh, I was definitely an odd one out as a child. Um, you know, I couldn't do any sport. I couldn't go do activities on school camps. There was no computers, no mobile phones, no just for TV stations. So there was a limited um, uh, amount of activities, which is probably why I became such a study head as a child. It's a it's a happy ending, but um, do you think that your experiences as a child within the medical sphere? It influenced your decision to become a doctor? Definitely. Um, I, I think you, you're influenced by things you know. So I was very much embedded in the medical system. My father was a GP as well. So medicine wasn't just that I knew medicine. I actually didn't know a lot else. So I think that did influence my career choice as far as what I was familiar with because, you know, as they say, you can't be what you can't see. And uh, I didn't see a lot, a lot of other options, I've got to admit. With your experiences as a patient, do you think that that actually has an impact on how you treat patients now as a doctor? Yeah, I'm sure that it does. The Because I've got an understanding of what it's like to be mm patient um and I think it provides a lot of empathy and that is the number one uh, important thing that it requires because you're serving your patients and acting in their best interests and putting their interests above yourself so it's it, it is uh definitely helped in the way I I treat people and my ability to understand what they what they're going through even if it's not the same condition in terms of your medical school years, take us through your mindset as a medical student. What were your dreams, goals, ambitions? So one of the things that influenced that choice for medicine was I did work experience. So I, I suppose I had this, what we've talked about is my, what led me to choose medicine. Um, and obviously I was academic. And so, you know, that helped. Uh, what sort of led me to then go in the surgical path was I did work experience when I was 15 in cardiothoracic surgery it was pretty crazy. I actually wrote to the head of Royal Adelaide Hospital and said, you know, I'm 15, I want to do work experience in cardiothoracic surgery. And I got a yes reply, um, which you know, I nearly fainted because I didn't expect a reply, let alone a yes. And it was in the, it was like 84, 1984. And so I got to do all these amazing things, cardioversion, drips in, take bloods, go into thick, theatre, you know, change into scrubs and watch uh, cardiac bypass and open heart surgery. And I was just like, oh, my God, you know, I am going to be a surgeon. So that was something that really led me into the surgical path. With 
and I think, you know, I'm not alone. You sort of go, I went one step at a time. So I didn't have a clear vision. Oh, I want to be a urologist, subspecialise in female urology. You know, there was medicine and surgery. And then I had to choose, obviously, a specialty. And as I did each rotation in my surgical training, I was like, oh, I want to do orthopedic. I want to do cardiothoracic. You know, each one you do, you think, this is fantastic. I want to do it. And I think that's pretty common. Um, the... Urology was an area where there was a lot of surgery that was seated and obviously everyone was like, you know, we'll do medicine, that's great, Sam, but, you know, do anything but surgery because you can't stand for prolonged periods. So, you know, uh, that was definitely one of the factors in urology. No female had done it, which was probably also, I suppose, a challenge um, and an area that I thought that I could also contribute or bring to the table something as the only female. The, the a lot of procedures are short, so I would get very stiff if I didn't move around. And so it wasn't just standing, but it was also the length of procedures. So I think a lot of those factors influenced me going into urology. I mean, one of the things that amazes me is the lack of education at the time. And still, if I say, say to medical students, how much time do you get on urinary incontinence in your medical school training? When you consider that it's more common than depression, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, you know, it doesn't get its, its um, uh, what it deserves. I had no idea just how common it was. We didn't have the statistics affecting that, you know, quarter of the population. So I kind of thought, oh, if I just focus on one area, I might not need to work full time. The reason I said that is because I was worried that I wasn't actually be able to work full time. Now, I didn't realise how busy I was going to be as the only female servicing that area, so that never sort of came to fruition and I was left, you know, struggling with full-time work. But that, I suppose that's how it, it all kind of evolved. In light of your experiences in high school and in medical school, what opportunities do you think medical students should seek out? There's so <laughs> many opportunities. I think a uh, good thing to think about is what experiences and skills do you want to acquire? That Everyone's only got 24 hours in the day. How do you want to spend your time? What do you want to spend it doing? And what will give you skills that in somehow will be useful in your journey? Now, not everyone knows clearly I want to you know, go from A to B. They don't actually know what B is. And, and I you know, I think we put too much emphasis on that. I don't think you actually really need to know, but you can still identify that you think certain things are going to be useful skills, whether it's going to be public speaking or presenting or financial skills or whatever it is. There might be skills directly and indirectly to your professional life that you'll be able to acquire. Um, so how you choose to spend your time. When it comes to actual medical experience, those early years are the really great years to stack on the experience you know you want long hours you want demanding you want a busy hospital you don't necessarily want you know um uh, to work uh you know when you're young you've got that energy you know I was on call I was running up to 100 hours a week I was doing shift work I was trauma registrar on call at, at you know our major trauma hospital I, none of the things which I would even dare do now. Um, so it was a good time when I was young to get that sort of experience. The other thing I would say is people. 
you learn so much from the people um, that you get to meet and spend time with. And also how happy you are and the quality of your life really depends on the people you surround yourself with and who you spend your time with. So seek out those inspirational people who, for whatever reason, have, you know, what you want, you know, have the attributes that you want. And by spending time with them, uh, whether they be you know, friends, professional colleagues, family, etc., choosing to spend your time with those people will help you move in that direction. Mm. And um, you are the right person to talk, be talking to about um, how to manage time. You wear several hats besides your clinical practice. You're also a single mom. You've served on several medical boards and you're also a writer. How do you juggle all these different roles? I think there's a few things. So first of all, one is timing. Uh, I haven't always done everything concurrently. And when you're balancing parenting, I think that's a really important point. Uh, there's a certain point when you've got young kids that it's very hard to do things concurrently. Um, uh, and yet you might see a lot of other colleagues who are not parenting young kids at that point in their career and are able to do things concurrently, but you may have to do things consecutively. So I was very, very involved in a lot of um you know, AMA, Continence Foundation, College of Surgeons, Board of Urology, before and I had my son, there was a period of time where I had to step down from those sorts of voluntary committee roles. There, he's now a teenager and life's different and I'm able to do more things concurrently as far as, you know, running a business and working as a surgeon and writing books, etc. And there's also different stages of life where now sort of in my 50s, I might not want to work the same hours clinically as I did 25 years ago. So it's about timing and structure and just realising you've got plenty of time to do things, even if you don't do them all at once. As you build things, you get better at it, you get more efficient and you can focus on one thing, get really good at it, and then it's easier to bring in other things. Just for me, like book writing, you know, I'm spending a lot of time, but now I've got my head around the self-publishing world and I've had five books out. I can, you know, do that as well as everything else and start to look for new things as well. <laughs> so the other second point I'd say to that is a team, having the right team. That changes over time, um, whether it be, uh, you know, even things like at times, obviously, when my son was younger, I had people to help with. Um, the shopping and the ironing and now I I don't because I'm at a different stage of life. So uh, different people on your team that might be involved, whether they be your accountant or people with your finance or business, whether they be your medical professional, whether they be running a house. So building that team, which will change as your needs change through life, is also an important way of juggling and doing it all. Right. Yeah. So having a lot of help if possible and also having a lot of sympathy for your time as well as trying to juggle less things and more trying to organize it consecutively rather than concurrently. And getting up at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> <laughs> with a cup of coffee. Right. Right. Okay. Um, and what was your motivation behind becoming an author and start writing books? The 
So how it started was I was struggling to do it all. And one of the biggest stresses of my life was what's for dinner. And over the years, you know, I'd gone from everything from when I was a single medical student having cereal for breakfast to sort of ordering takeouts to spending a fortune on you know, meals to when my son was little, a few days a week and someone would pick him up, they'd prepare dinner those nights. I'd gone through so many different renditions of what seemed to be a lifelong battle of what's for dinner. And, you know, I think you know, I'd spend fortune buying cookbooks, I'd look at them, I'd spend hours getting shopping lists. Um, it was a real time-consuming part of my life, you know, to get food on the table. And I just it was had to crack the code. And I also had difficulty with my hips. I could, if I shop, I was in so much pain, I couldn't, couldn't even unpack shopping, let alone cook a meal. And if I cooked a meal, I couldn't wash up, you know. So I had to really be organised and efficient. And what I did was I started to work out that if I had a basic repertoire of meals, I cooked um, without a recipe, it was faster. I could also cook in a way where, like, you might cook a vegetable that's going to take the longest and while that's starting to cook, you're chopping the next vegetable. So I kind of really reduced the time I had to cook and stand. I wasn't measuring up. I wasn't using many utensils. I cleaned up as I went. I could shop once a fortnight and planned my meals to... Um, so that, you know, you use the fresh ingredients in the first part of the two weeks and the longer shelf life in the second part of the two weeks. So I've developed this repertoire and suddenly I had hours in my week. I had loads less stress. I was more efficient. I could, at the end of the day, I was hangry and I had decision fatigue. You know, it was it was stressful to order Uber Eats, just choosing what I wanted and waiting. So this was fast. It was quicker. It was easier. I saved loads of money and I halved our grocery bills, our food waste was down and I have never used another cookbook since <laughs> I wrote my cookbook um, and it just changed my life. So, you know, it was healthier, I lost weight, I wasn't eating out all the time and I, you know, I suppose, you know, we're all in medicine because we want to help other people I thought well you know if I can share this with other people and it helps them then that's great there's you know so many cookbooks and celebrity chefs and cooking shows for people who um want to cook but like how much is there for people who don't want to cook <laughs> people who don't got, buy cookbooks they don't want a pretty meal so it's a, written in prose there's no recipes there's no um pictures it's something specifically for like a uni student that you could read on the bus um, and just get a couple of basic meals but if anyone is interested you can download free from my website and there's about four meals that you can learn how to, to to for free that you can learn how to make and that would definitely you know I think young people is the is the key that's what I wish I'd known what you could save in a day a week a month and if you invested that and compounded over your lifetime you know, I see people who say I don't cook and it's like well you do eat what's that going to cost you in your lifetime and and health wise you know there's just so much hidden fat and sugar so that that is how the book started and then I was addicted um because there were just so many benefits of writing and it was a way of getting out a message and things I was passionate about. So then I wrote When I'm a Surgeon, which was really about breaking gender stereotypes for young girls and motivating them to dream big and selling 
some of the sort of stereotypes people have about what a surgeon does because there's lots of wonderful other opportunities, travel, you know, teaching, um, that people might not associate with being a surgeon. And then I thought, why stop there? So I wrote when I'm an entrepreneur and then when I'm an astronaut, it's due out in a couple of months. So that's how the books kind of happen. Yeah. So, and it's also quite an affordable book, the cookbook. It's $4 on Kindle. So it's pretty affordable for most students. Um, My, what I wanted was I wanted to make a book they could download that I didn't want one piece. You know, you can read it in an evening. You know, it might take you a few hours, I don't know, three hours or something. And I wanted something where in one day, in just one day, a student could save enough to cover the book mm. and then think about that modified over their lifetime. Right, right. That, that's, yeah, that's actually, yeah, very much worth it to just get it. Yeah. And uh, in terms of the books you re- you've written for children, what was your motivation to write for children? Yes. Well, I'm time poor, so I always look at what's going to be the most efficient. And I had lots of, you know, there were lots of stereotypes and um, gender issues. You know, women have come a long way, but there was only 4% of surgeons were female when I started. So that was an area that motivated me to want to do something. Now, if when I thought about that problem, you know, career gender stereotypes start to form in children about age three. And if you can stop those stereotypes from forming in the first place, that's going to be the most effective place for me to spend my energy. That Then I felt that what that does is it also, it's not just the child, there's going to be an adult buying the book, an adult reading to the child. So it helps not just the children, but society as a whole break those stereotypes. The, the other thing that I think is the if you said what's the number one thing important for success and that is self-efficacy, self-belief because once you have that you will persevere in the face of adversity, you will have resilience you will find solutions to barriers I've had plenty of barriers that I've had to overcome and you will never overcome you'll never succeed in your goals unless you have self-belief so I felt that was the number one fundamental building block and that Again, it's about self-belief. I don't want every girl to be a surgeon, but I want every girl to believe she can be a surgeon, an entrepreneur, an astronaut. So building that self-belief and starting off in kids was where I thought I was going to get the best bang for buck as far as investing my time and energy. It's a very, it's like planting a seed. You know, if, it, if, if a three-year-old reads when I'm a surgeon, um, they might be 30, I'll be 83 by then. <laughs> I might not see the results, uh, the full results of the books, but that is definitely what motivated me to inspire. I didn't have a lot of strong female role models um, in leadership or success, so that's where I felt I really wanted to make it. Do you think that there are this or having all these wearing all these hats and having all these roles that you're in in sort of affects and enriches your clinical practice yeah that is really interesting because you know you someone might say oh my god that's going to detract from your clinical practice i mean i i was driven to surgery because i like to challenge i like to push myself i like excitement i liked 
things that were demanding. I like to be learning. You know, there's nothing better than studying for exams. Um, I love exams, you know, and the fellowship. So after that, you know, you can, I think the real danger is 20 years as a surgeon, there's a danger in cruise control. You might think cruise control is good, but really if you want to be performing at your peak, if you think about, you know, Olympic athletes or whatever, if you want to be performing at your peak, you need to be challenged. And, you know, everyone might think, oh, my God, surgery is such a challenging career. But it, it, it's not like it is when you first start after you've been at it 20 years. So doing something, you know, it doesn't have to be writing books, but doing something where you're learning something new, you're keeping yourself focused, your mental acuity, you're sharp, um, is going to benefit you as a surgeon, whatever or, or as a whatever you do in life, to stay fit. You know, it's much easier to stop your mental acuity from declining with age than it is your physical, yeah? I think it's easier to stay fit. And, you know, um, Sudoku and Wordle probably just aren't enough to kind of keep, <laughs> keep me at my peak and keep me young. So there's hybrid skills, you know, there's crossover skills. I, I started off writing things. You know, I've never had a hobby. I've been a workaholic. I've just really focused on my, my surgical career. And, you know, with COVID, you know, I, I don't drink. I'm a single mum. You know, what else am I going to I don't watch television. What else am I going to do at night? So I started that as a hobby. But what I didn't realise unexpectedly was how it was actually going to benefit me as a surgeon. In the ability for mental acuity, learning, um, productivity. Now, being able to focus. I mean, you know, I always struggle mindfulness and meditation because it's hard for me to switch my mind off but if I'm absorbed in writing it gives a similar result and then you know as I started to get some I suppose publicity through the books I started getting contacted to speak at medical conferences about incontinence and speak on podcasts about incontinence not just like this so it started to have these crossover benefits you know I had to learn a whole lot of stuff about social media you know I, I was in my 50s I didn't have an Instagram account and what that what does that help do when I'm giving a presentation on urinary incontinence now my my talks are that much better my communication is that much better my slides are that much better the it, it just does cross over and you know obviously I've got so much more time now because I I've cracked lots for dinner as well so it, it all starts to weave backwards and forwards and it does benefit. I think, I mean, I love business and entrepreneurship and that's been a great part of my career as well. And as soon as you do something in another industry, whatever you're in, you do something in another industry, it broadens your mind. It, it improves that ability to have that helicopter perspective. And that's really important for problem solving and critical thinking. And so I you see problems in another industry and the way they've been solved and you can apply that from you know, industry one to industry two. So, again, being the writing journey has helped me in critical thinking when it comes not just to clinical scenario but also um, business. So it's surprising the ongoing benefits of how they start to feed off each other. Right. So it definitely seems like it enriches your experience overall just doing writing and yeah, your clinical practice is also benefited. Um, in terms of the fact that you are an entrepreneur, in medical school, there is not much education around managing a business. You are just that now and you've developed your single surgeon practice into a center of excellence. It's called Continence Matters, as you said, and you provide 
several surgical and non-surgical services to men and women struggling with incontinence. Do you have any advice or insights you would like to share with others hoping to follow a similar path? Well, I have loved entrepreneurship. They say that being an entrepreneur is like jumping off a cliff and stumbling a plane <laughs> on the way down. So the fact that you don't have any training in medical school is fine. The key is loving it, loving the problem solving. You know, I love going into work and saying, okay, guys, what's today's problem? So you've got to have that mindset. And then you solve the problems as you go. And as you solve each problem, you know, your mistakes are just as important as your successes in business because of what you learn. There's no real textbook way of learning business. The, again, you know, great mentors, surrounding yourself with the right people, having the right team um, is important. The But a, a fundamental thing is loving business. So one of the... One of the things I love, there's a quote from the 1800s from Josephine Cochran, who was one of the first female entrepreneurs. She was an American who invented the dishwasher. I mean, how many uh, inventions are there that have still such a wide reach and relevance in society this far down the track? And she was a, a female entrepreneur and she said, you know, if I knew all I knew today, I never would have had the courage to start. But then I would have missed out on a very wonderful experience. And I think that really sums it up. Um, the, it might not be for everyone, so I really think you need to work out what makes you happy. The starting a practice, starting a business from scratch, whatever it is, you know, is a massive time investment, a whole lot of sweat equity um, and an exciting journey. And that doesn't necessarily suit everybody. Obviously, there's an easier model where you join an existing business or existing practice um, and you definitely don't necessarily need to solve all the problems yourself or all the problems your own. And then there's some people who, you know, just don't have anything. They're not involved in the running of the practice at all and you don't have any of that stress and, you, you know, because obviously all of that stuff is weekends, late at nights, early mornings, during the office hours you're seeing patients, you know, I'm seeing patients and operating. So you can't do it all. If you want to start a business from scratch, you're going to do less clinical work mm-hmm. because, yeah, there's going to be a trade-off. That's the trade-off. And so where you want to spend your energy is going to be important. And working out what is going to make you happy, I think, is what's right for one person. You know, some people hate the business side of things. So you've just got to work out what where your passions are. As long as you're passionate about it, then you, you're going to be successful. And in terms of um, the Incontinence Matters workshop that you run for GPs and medical students currently, can you tell us a bit about that? So over the last 20 years, I've given multiple lectures to medical students, general public, GPs and specialists and I think after 20 years I was thinking you know maybe there's an easier way but it wasn't just that I've always been passionate about education so I've developed a lot of information on our continence matters website for patients and doctors getting that information out to people and when I run when I've been asked like for the college of GPs or something to run workshops for GPs there's GPs that sign up but what about the GPs that don't sign up you know and they might be rural, it might be where they live. It just might be that, you know, as a single mum, I know what it's like, you know, when you can't get childcare because they have these things, you know, ideal time for you would be go home, get dinner, 
get homework done and do something like late at night when they've gone to sleep, not after work. So the timing could be wrong for certain groups. The other thing is there's some people that just they're sort of a bit interested, but they're not interested enough to give up a Saturday and come to a workshop. But if it's like on demand and they could do it, you know, while they're watching the kids sport or whatever. So I developed an online course hoping that I could reach a wider audience. And as I said before, you know, I ask medical students, they'll say like we get one lecture or something in incontinence, like, oh, my God, you know, it just doesn't seem to get the right attention. So I wanted that basic knowledge because we have lots of meetings about it and we have specialist meetings and people who specialise in that area come. But the generalist is the one that kind of probably doesn't have the training they need. And so, you know, things that get referred to me that, you know, probably don't need to be referred to a specialist if there was more basic training. So I wanted a basic training that would help continence nurses, continence physios, primary physicians, medical students, you know, that all you need to know to get through life. And I decided that, uh, you know, keeping me young and modern in doing a video course. So there's 42 videos and the average video length is two minutes and 50 seconds, which exceeds the adult life attention span by about (laughs) two minutes and 40 seconds. I I now know, but no, you can watch it on demand. You can rewatch it. Um, there's some course notes and then I've done templates for handouts so that people can fully editable in Word, you know, they can put their own logos if they've got a practice, they can, it's a sort of a starter for a patient information sheet that they can develop and done the work for them. So the aim was to try and get a broader base knowledge in this area available to people that wouldn't necessary normally have maybe that basic knowledge so that was the course so if people are interested um there's a link on my website samanthapillay.com i think on the media page is the link to the course and then on the continencematters.com website homepage, there's a link to the course it's called the online continence course for health professionals and yeah i mean medical students absolutely it'd be all you ever need to know unless you specialize in the area in terms of like your blog, you've mentioned on your blog that you think of uh, incontinence to some extent being the Voldemort condition where it's not really talked about as much as it should be. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah. So carrying on from what I was just talking about, you know, if, if you there's this great wall, okay, if the patient doesn't want to talk about it because they're embarrassed and the doctor doesn't want to talk about it because they've got no training, you can have a patient, you can, I mean, I have patients where they'll say, you know, my doctor asked me every year at my women's check whether I had incontinence. And every year I said no and I lied, right? And that was the end of the conversation. And then it got so bad that I just said to myself, next year I'm not going to tell the truth. But, you know, the converse, if, if, if the doctor is so relieved when the patient says no, you're not going to do the detective work to ask the question. So, the you know, I have patients who uh, hide their pads so that they're, husbands, partners, don't family don't know that they're incontinent. I have women who come in for incontinence surgery who don't tell their husband or partner what they're having done. They're too embarrassed. So we know that incontinence is really common. So you know I I'm guessing Vanessa that you might be in the age group of um 16 to 30 without kids. Would yeah. that be a good guess? Okay. Yeah. So the risk of you having urinary incontinence is six percent already 16 by the time you're my age it's 55 percent of the population adult female population in the community so 
we also know that 60% don't seek help. And people, because it's sort of not a life-threatening condition, they fail to appreciate the impact it's having on their life. It might be exercise, and we all know what happens, what the health benefits of exercise are. It might be where they travel, what clothes they wear. It might be self-esteem, depression, sexual relationships. It might be financial. There's the cost of pads, um, which can be expensive. Now, you know, work out what that is over 40 years, and that, that, that is expensive. Uh, or participation in the workforce, not advancing in their career, not working full time, not choosing certain jobs because of their incontinence. So there's huge financial implications all the way down to one of the three most common reasons for admission to a nursing home, you know, as you get into older age. So it's very easy for people to not face up to the impact that it's actually having. So that's why I've been passionate about ending the stigma and creating conversations about the topic and encouraging people to see, seek help because they don't appreciate the benefits it have on their quality of life. Mm. And yes, it does sound like a very important topic to cover because of the fact that it has so many impacts on the patient's life in terms of finances, in terms of being stigmatized by other people and also the overall effect in their mental health as well? I'm very lucky in being able to work in this area, I believe. I'm very fortunate because it's a wonderful way to help people and you really change people's lives and you get incredible gratitude, the difference it makes because when of this impact that it has, the ability for people to embrace their lives and enjoy their lives, the actual benefit in the quality of life they get when you treat this condition. I would encourage, you know, GPs and primary care physicians and anyone who treats patients to, to work in this area because you can actually make such a difference to someone's lives that it's very rewarding. You know, if you check their blood sugar or their blood pressure and tell them they've got hypertension, diabetes, and they've got no symptoms, you know, they might not be that thankful for the news and they won't notice the difference when you fix it, although it's going to have long-term health benefits, but when you fix something that they're actually suffering with there and then they're very appreciative. So it's a very rewarding um, area to, to, to treat in your patients and a great thing to add. You know, we need, we need these things in medicine to keep us going where we help someone and they're grateful. It's our reward for what we do. Yes, absolutely. And in terms of your values, that you think have helped you most to get to where you are today? What are they? Um, the, uh, I think a strong work ethic. You know, I've really pushed myself um, to make a difference at, and in so many different ways, and that comes down to a really strong work ethic. Um, that and wanting to serve others and empathy I'm not someone that needs to go out a lot or socialise a lot or have a lot of fun in the way that you might, you know, classically think that way. So it leaves me with a lot of time and energy to do the things that give me the rewards that I like, which is you know, making a difference and helping people. So I think they are the kind of important things for, you know, success for me. I think you're selling yourself short. I think that you decided to spend a lot of time doing worthy things. And yeah, that's your personal decision as well. Thank you so much. This brings us to the end of the chat. Thank you so much for being here. This has been incredible. 
I'm very, very happy to have been here. I love as students, it, you know, I started medical school when I was, or went up to the, off to the med camp when I was 16 and it feels like it's just yesterday. <laughs> um, it's 30 years ago, but anyway, um, more than 30 years ago, uh, 35 years ago or something. But anyway, I um, it's great to be able to speak to students, you know, and wish everyone the best of luck with their careers and hope they have the most rewarding careers and as much fun as I've had. And I would say, you know, you can do so many different things. Um, you can do something that someone else just hasn't done before. You have any blend of things, um, you know. So reach out if anyone wants to contact me. All my social media links are on my website, samanthapillay.com. They can download free recipes or meals or whatever. So, yeah, please don't get in touch if you've got questions. And uh, I wish all the students the very, very best for their careers. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Pillay, and I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>